Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. And as much as I love the guests that we have on, I appreciate even more the impact of their stories, their messages, their lives on yours. So I'm asking you to take just a moment to do me a big favor. I'd like you to take a survey so that we can better understand what it is about our Live Inspired podcast that you love, what's working for you, maybe what's not working perfectly for you, what more you'd like to hear about, and maybe a special guest you'd like us to bring on. You can take this survey by visiting me online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Again, here we go, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Come on. I really want these podcasts to be as best as they can. I want them to challenge your thinking and elevate your lives. So take just a moment right now, help us make this better, not only for you, but for our entire community. Your feedback matters. So go again right now to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Now, here we go. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. As you know, on every Live Inspired podcast episode, I bring amazing guests in to share their life story so that you can better understand and more fully live out your own life story. I wanna give you a couple questions on the front side of this podcast today. Here they are, ready? Is it too late? Does my past define me? Have I made too many mistakes? Does my life even really matter? Can one person actually make a difference? And can I, I wanna say this again, can I actually make a difference? My friends, from time to time, I believe these are questions that the majority of us have found ourselves asking, but I have the unbelievable honor of visiting with a friend today who has asked these questions, a guy who has been to some dark places, a guy who has made a lifetime of mistakes before his 28th birthday, and yet also a guy who turned his life around and is doing so, and in doing so, has saved literally the lives of billions. And I'm not exaggerating here. Scott Harrison is the founder of Charity Water. Eliciting the help of more than a million donors worldwide, they have raised, listen to this one, more than $320 million dollars funded more than 30,000 well projects in 26 countries and provided clean, safe drinking water to more than 8 million people. 8 million people. Scott's been on Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40, but who hasn't? So I'm not gonna brag about that. Forbes Impact 30, Fast Company considers him the 10th most creative person in all of business. And if you are like me and you're hearing all of this stuff, you're probably thinking, man, I bet this guy is a first class jerk. You know, I was thinking the same thing until I met him, until I hung out with him, until I read his remarkable recently released number one national best-selling book. It's called Thirst, You Need to Get a Copy Now. And I can confidently say that far from a jerk, he is incredibly inspiring. He's humble, he's loving, and he is here to share his story that your best days remain in front of you. So my friends, here we go. 
Take a deep breath, buckle up, open up your hearts, your minds, your journals, grab that pen and get ready to take some notes because I have the honor of bringing on my friend, Scott Harrison. Scott, welcome to Live Inspired with John. Hey, John. John, thank you so much for having me, man. (laughs) What a blessing. I, I have looked up to you and to your work for more than a decade. I think what you're doing is world changing. So to have the opportunity to meet you just about a month ago and now to uh, be on the show with you, man, it, it's awesome. For those, for those who uh, somehow missed the introduction, tell us briefly about the work that you're doing today. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm recording this from New York City uh, in our headquarters down in, in Tribeca and uh, Charity Water is trying to bring clean and safe drinking water to every single person alive on earth. And we've been at it for 12 years now. Uh, there are currently 660 million people drinking dirty contaminated water mm-hmm. right now. It's about a tenth of the world. And we think that number should be zero. And we, we fight every day to, to bring that 663 million down to zero. And we believe it's going to happen. So Scott, our, our listeners on the show know that frequently I will bring our guest back to his or her past. And I'll have them talk a little bit about where they grew up or their parents, their pastors, their rabbis, the teachers, the people who informed them and helped shape them into the individual they became. Through following you online and knowing the story uh, of your organization and now subsequently reading the phenomenal book, Thirst, which we will talk about shortly, I've learned a lot more about your story and I've recognized some of the great heroes in your story are your mom and your dad. So let's start at the beginning. Where were you from? And brag and talk a little bit about mom and dad. So it's a pleasure to do that. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia and dad was a middle-class business guy, worked at an electrical plant. Uh, they sold power transformers to, um, to cities in the Navy and such. And my mom was a writer. And my parents, uh, my dad was a, a, a ex, ex-sailor, kind of hard drinking, you know, hard cussing guy and met mom at a party, uh, thought she had nice legs, walked over, you know, they fell in love. And then uh, right before um, I turned four years old, my parents uh, went to a Bible study and became Christians and were kind of um, convicted of, uh, of how selfish they were. They'd been having some marriage issues and, and, uh, and th- this will become important later. So one of the first things they did uh, with their newfound faith was want to spend more time together as a family. And I was, uh, I was three at the time and um, they move closer to my dad's work and they find this drab gray house, not, not a dream house, by any stretch of the imagination, but there was a good uh, kindergarten on the end of the, uh, the little cul-de-sac. And my dad would take an hour commute each way down to 20 minutes. And this is what you know Christian families did. So they were really excited about this. So what, what I didn't know, what none of us knew at the time, was the house that we moved into had a carbon monoxide gas leak. And this was you know, almost four decades ago. They had not yet invented the detector. Uh, now you can buy them in blister packs mm-hmm. at the Home Depot. So we didn't know it. So we move in in the dead of winter to this energy efficient house. And my mom is spending 24 hours a day in the house, fixing it up, unpacking boxes. Uh, I'm going to school, you know, playing at my friend's house after school. My dad's working long hours. And we all start to get a little sick. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom and she crumples to the floor unconscious. And after a series of blood tests, they find the culprit. They find this massive amount of carbon monoxide, uh, carboxyhemoglobin in her bloodstream. 
And thankfully, none of us die. Uh, my mom doesn't die, but she is never the same again. And her immune system dies. Her, her immune system is irreparably damaged and compromised. And um, my dad and I slowly bounce back to health, but we watch mom go from, you know, a former picture of health to an right. invalid. Right. And she's, it was just weird, John. Uh, from this point on, everything makes her sick, whether it's soaps or uh, perfume or aftershave or fabric softener or car fumes. Anything just gives her this this unbelievable reaction. I, I remember she, she lamented the fact that she could no longer read because the ink mm. from books would make her sick, that, that fresh print smell. So she starts moving into, um, into isolation. It's a life of charcoal masks, walking around with oxygen tanks. We prepare containment rooms for her in our house, a, a tile bathroom covered in aluminum foil. And I immediately am thrust into a caregiver role. So mom, mom is gone, and now I'm doing the cooking for her. I'm doing the cleaning. I'm, I'm helping out around the house. My dad and I are doing the best that we can. And I'll say my parents, their Christian faith motivated them not to sue the gas company for you know what I believe would have been gross negligence. I think they could have gotten millions, but they just didn't want to become bitter. And they said, look, the, we believe this has happened for a reason. Um, we're going to find the, the meaning and the, the purpose behind mm -hmm. this, but, but we don't think a lawsuit is the way to go. So I grew up in a, in a very um, Christian home. I played Sunday, you know, I played piano every Sunday school. Um, I, I, I joined the worship band later in church and I just, I played by the rules. I was an only child taking care of mom. I wasn't swearing. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't sleeping around. Uh, and then, uh, how do I put it? 18, 18 happened. <laughs> Life John. changes. Before we get to 18, I'm, I'm curious in, in knowing you and in doing life long enough, you were a spoiled, well-loved, ordinary little boy, loved beautifully by your mom. And then life happens where you become the parent. It's a complete, yeah. utter role re reversal. Whether you, you've resented it in real time or now that you've had years to look back on it, did, did that change the way that you acted as a child? Not just like it matured you quickly, but it, did it make you a little bitter? You talked about your mom and dad did not want to be bitter, but did this event make you bitter? You know, I remember the innocence of a child. The, the early years was this wanting mom to get better, um, wanting to be a doctor so that I could find the cure for her disease. Um, so I think it was the sweet little kid, maybe around five, six, seven, eight, and 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 just a, a deep level of compassion, empathy. I think as I moved into the teenage years, the resentment really. Um, kicked in. And I wanted my, why couldn't my mom be normal? Why couldn't my mom be there like the other moms? Um, and I think it didn't help that my parents were really strict. So mm -hmm. in some ways, because mom couldn't be as involved in my life in a day-to-day -day fluid relationship, there were a lot of rules, right? There, there was, you know, how I should right. eat and the amount of TV that I could watch. So I just began to kind of kick against the goads. I began to rebel. And, you know, I would have these memories of coming home. So my mom and teenage years would, would live in a lean-to. Uh, a, a friend's father came and took four big pieces of wood and, and put them together. So mom would sit in the cracks of these giant pieces of wood trying to avoid the wind. And she would sit on a little lawn chair and she would have masks on. And, and if the wind changed, she would move to another side of the lean-to because the house made her sick. Everything made her sick. Mm. 
And I remember I would come home and my poor mom has been sitting there all day and I'm coming home from school and she's sitting halfway in the back lawn and she would yell to me as I'd come in and I would just ignore her and go mm-hmm. into the house as if I didn't hear because, uh, so I think it, it changed and there's, there's definitely some moments that I'm, I'm not proud of. Um, there was a, there's a scene I write about in the book yeah. that I, that I, <laughs> I, I, of course I was questioning throughout was this real? Yes. I mean, was this just in her head? Was this psychosomatic? And, and the, the part of me believed that mom just wants to rain on my parade. She wants me to take care of her. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a time when, when mom said, well, electromagnetic radiation makes me sick. So this, this just means radios, um, any kind of screens, TVs. So now I can't ever watch TV in the living room or have the radio on if she's anywhere near. And I'm like, oh, come on, mm-hmm. come on. So I remember uh, this one night where I waited till she went to sleep and I crept down the hallway and I had a radio. <clears throat> and this radio, uh, I turned the volume all the way down and I pointed it at her. So it was blasting her through the night with silently blasting her yes. with radio waves, just electromagnetic radiation pulsing through her body. And I'm like, I'm gonna declare victory in the morning. Right? Hey, mom, how you feeling? Great. Ha ha. Guess what? You were, you know, bathing, you were basking in electromagnetic magnetic waves, but you didn't know it. So therefore you were fine. Well, that's not what happened. She woke up really, really ill in the morning and terrified because she didn't know what had happened to her in her safe room. <laughs> and, and I had this, you know, it was a moment of clarity. I mean, obviously there was some shame in, in the fact that I was the one that had made her sick. My, my non-belief had made her sick. Um, but I really, I believed it was real. And, and in a way I needed that, I needed that extreme kind of blind test to, to believe that it was real. That didn't make me want to take care of her. You're right. And, and Scott, you, you wrote about that. It, it, um, it was one of many, many, many intense, beautiful, tragic moments all kind of tied up as one. When did you, for the first time, go back and tell her that story? I'm assuming it, assuming it was not when she read chapter four of Thirst. She'd known that story. Um, I I told it um, to others, uh, just really as a, <laughs> the way that I told the story was a way of proving that it was real. <laughs> you know, almost as I was giving her a gift. Right. Um, right. I, I think in the grand scheme of things, John, that, that I had done as a teenager, that would have ranked low on the list. <laughs> well, let, let's <laughs> of, pivot. Of offenses. Let's talk a little bit about what you did as a teenager, and we don't need to brag on the the long rap sheet, but it is a long rap sheet. You eventually find your way in New York. I believe you're in a band called Sunday River Band, which sounds maybe like a, a wonderful uh, Christian rock band. It's anything other than that. <laughs> exactly. Y- you are making some really poor choices. At the end of one of your chapters, I want to share with you a quote. And I'm, I'd like you to share with me and, of course, our listeners what it means, Scott. Here's what it, what it ends, ends up with you saying. It was messy. You're talking about like your, your life around you. It was messy because I was living, period, end quote, end of chapter. When you wrote that, and now when you hear those words again, what do you mean by that? Well, at the time, I thought that the rules were to keep people from living. Uh, that there was this, you know, that the Christian faith or the church was so afraid of anything outside the walls of of the beliefs and and of you know of the order of the Sunday morning that. 
you know, afraid of the big wide world out there. And, and, you know, I'd grown up kind of in that fear, in that religiosity, in that rules-based culture. And the minute I got outside, I mean, that stuff that we weren't allowed to do, it was fun. Mm -hmm. It was really fun. And it, it was also, it was messy because I was, I was throwing away the order, you know, staying up for two days, you know, coming off of a hangover or, you know, moving on to cocaine or, you know, some of the stuff that came later. It was messy, but... In in the act of rebellion, it did feel freeing in some ways it, at that moment. You know, in a, in a way, I was exploring the opposite. Right. And and when I when I kind of gave everybody the finger, you know, the proverbial finger, both church and my family at 18 years old, and said, "Okay, played by the rules for for part one of my life. Um, now I'm going to play by my own rules, and now I'm actually going to go and explore." Um, all the stuff that I wasn't allowed to do and mm-hmm. see how that feels and see how that fits. And it, 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 it was messy because I kind of took it all on at once, but it also felt freeing at the time, at the very beginning. Well, you become incredibly successful in that second chapter of your life. You, you write in great detail about the booze, about the drugs, about the girls, about the success, about the clubs. You become a night nightclub promoter. How, how did you stumble into that? And, and, uh, w- what did your life look like during that season? <laughs> well, my first act of rebellion was to join a rock band and grow my hair down to my shoulders. And, you know, short of getting a tattoo, this just, uh, this terrified my parents. So the band Sunday River was named after some ski resort in New England that we'd never even gone to, but it <laughs> somehow heard of and just sounded like a good name. Uh, and, and the band was actually pretty good. It was a, it was an alternative rock band. The singer had a great voice and we start playing these legendary nightclubs in New York city, CBGBs in the wetlands. And we get discovered one night by the scorpions and their manager. And we're being pursued by band managers and labels and yeah, everything's going great. And we have this moment where we're booked out to play a big show and I make friends with a nightclub promoter and I understand the economics of this. And I realize that he's making all the money, charging people to come in and he's throwing us the scraps. Mm. You know, guys, here's a couple hundred dollars split it six ways, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't even enough for gas or, you know, to, to repair, you know, the guitar um, or pay for guitar strings. <laughs> and and w- the, the band... Uh, <laughs> no surprise, maybe, to people listening. The band immediately breaks up. So we lasted a couple months in New York City and, and the, the usual things. Right, uh, no one saw that coming. Of, lots of, yeah, exactly. Not lots of drugs and we couldn't get along. And we all hated each other and backstabbing. But at that moment, I already committed to move to New York City to make the band rich and famous. And I said, well, maybe I'm on the wrong side of the business because the, the money and the power is on the other side of that velvet rope. It's the guy booking the bands, deciding who comes into the club. So I befriend this nightclub promoter and say, hey, teach me the ropes of this business. And that then leads to me going out on my own and working at 40 different nightclubs over the next 10 year period. And and my ambition, if you'd asked me at the time, was to be the king of New York. You know, everybody's heard about those legendary movies yeah. of, you know, the club, club, um, USA studio 54. I, I, I guess if, if one was interested in rebelling, you could not <laughs> rebel with more style than to be a nightclub promoter. 
I mean, the idea of being up there in the DJ booth, looking over a mass of dancing, sweating, gyrating people, um, spending exorbitant amounts on alcohol, a line of a thousand people trying to get in the club. You know, this was a picture of uh, hedonism, maybe. It was a picture of opposite. You know, not wearing the, the keyboard tie and playing in the worship band, you know, to the, the busted PA on Sunday mornings. I mean, this was, this was living. You, you, you live it up for a long time. And then eventually you find yourself in a place that is not opposites. Uh, but I think it's even more painful than either of the opposites. Uh, I have a, a dear friend who struggles with, with bipolar. And this, this individual has decided to come off of his medicine because of the feeling he hated of numbness. He hated, he resented the feeling of just being, uh, he, he refers to it as the walking dead. And you find yourself, maybe not with some diagnosis, but you feel yourself enduring life numbly. T talk about being numb. Well, over 10 years, I pick up all the vices you might imagine <laughs> would come with the territory. And, you know, I'm a bad son, John, during this time. I mean, it, in some ways, uh, the story so closely parallels the the prodigal son parable from the Bible. I mean, I I just say I'm going out on my own. Um, uh, what what always struck me about learning about that parable was that the son effectively says to his father, "I hate you." Asking for his inheritance is is a rejection. It's it's a it's a really powerful like um, rebuke. And, you know, I did my 10 years of, of walking as far away from faith and morality and family as possible. And during those years, I would call home with the jab. Hey, Dad, I'm in Paris. <laughs> Been up for three days doing coke. <laughs> it's amazing over here. Mm. You know, hang up. I mean, why I would do that? I would send uh, racy postcards from my nightclubs. I mean, I, I remember doing a, a legendary party year after year called Pimps and Hoes. Right, we thought this was a good idea at the time, and I would send picture. I would send invitations to this party to my poor mother. <laughs> so I was such a bad son, and I'm I'm smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, sometimes three. I'm doing cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, uh, special K. I'm drinking heavily. I'm gambling. I'm addicted to pornography. <laughs> I actually lived over a, a pornography store. Uh, I'm going out to strip clubs. And, and I'm basically rotting inside, but my life looks amazing on the outside. If you saw me, I'm dressed in great clothes and I'm jumping in the back of, you know, Mercedes S500s with six models <clears throat> in the back of limousines. I'm flying around to fashion weeks around the world. Right. So it's, it was such an interesting, uh, good, looks good on the outside, but just deeply Hollow, right. inhuman and empty and and around the 10-year mark of this, uh, my body suddenly just goes numb. Half, half my body, I can't feel anymore. And uh, it, was, it was the strangest sensation. I remember turning on hot water, boiling hot water, sticking my hand underneath it. It couldn't feel anything. I mean, I could have I taken you know, a hammer to my foot or my, my hands or my elbow and felt nothing. So I, of course, start going to neurologists, and they're doing brain scans and MRIs, and they're attaching <laughs> wires to my arms and my legs, and nothing is wrong with me. And I remember vividly, and I, uh, one night, you know, after midnight, I walk over to my big desktop Mac, and I type in numbness, 
into Google looking for some sort of medical diagnosis. And instead, I get a sermon about being spiritually numb. And you have to understand, for 10 years, I, I hadn't necessarily lost my faith. I had just lost all will to obey you know, anything related to that faith. So I wouldn't have said that I'd turned into an atheist or, or rejected um, the idea of God. I just didn't want to play by the rules anymore. Right. So there was something about half my body going numb, living this really unhealthy lifestyle and, you know, getting, getting uh, fed with a sermon when I type in a, looking for a medical diagnosis that was just this, it was this wake up call. I, I felt mortal maybe for the first time. What if I don't live forever? What if I died right now? What if there was something terribly wrong with me, a brain tumor or, you know, a, a, an a incurable disease? Um, did I still believe in heaven and hell? Where would I go? I was pretty sure if, they, you know, yeah. if, if, if heaven and hell existed, um, I, it'd be pretty hard to let this guy into heaven. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially because I hadn't wanted anything to do with you know, a, a God or a, or a faith for 10 years and, and had lived my life in, in opposition to that. So I start um, praying again and kind of searching. And, and right after this time, I go to South America and I have this moment where I'm surrounded by opulence. We, we had rented, my, my nightclub friends and I had rented a huge compound and it came with servants who cooked for us and waited on us and came with magnums of Dom Perignon and this huge yacht that we rented. And my girlfriend at the time was on the cover of fashion magazines and she was the most beautiful girl on the compound. And I had the Rolex watch and I drove a BMW and I had a grand piano back in my New York City apartment. I had the Labrador Retriever. I mean, what more could you want? And I realized it was this moment of clarity, the health issues, the, this moment of clarity. I realized there would never be enough. Because as I looked around the compound, I saw people who had a little more, mm. <laughs> people with a little more money. Um, maybe a girlfriend who was a little more famous, a better car, a better watch, a private plane. I remember watching someone uh, in, our, in our party spend $10,000 a hand on Baccarat indifferently. I just couldn't care less whether they won or lost. And you know, $10,000 would still have meant something to me at the time. And, and it was this moment of epiphany. It was almost like the, the game of musical chairs and, and the music stops. And for the first time I look around and there's nowhere to sit. Mm. It was this moment of disruption. So on this trip, so I'm still drinking and drugging on the trip, but I start crying out to God and, and I start reading the Bible again. And I'm reading this, this kind of dense theological book called The Pursuit of God by yeah. this guy, A.W. Tozer, that my dad had just given me at Christmas. So my parents never gave up faith. They had prayed for 10 years for their prodigal to come home. They had churches praying. They had little old ladies locked up in prayer closets wearing <laughs> holes in the carpet with their knees. You know, the, These were faithful people. And you know, 10 years later, it just hit. And I'm like, well, I, I hate my life. I'm morally bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm perhaps leaving the most meaningless legacy that a person could leave on this planet. The only thing I do is get people wasted for a living. Mm. You know, I, I mean, you, perhaps the most unhelpful. I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm turning people effectively into addicts yeah. by telling them that their life has meaning if they come in and they get wasted in my club. And this begins kind of a six-month process where um, I've got one foot in and one foot out. So my heart has changed, and I'm trying to come back to faith and morality and, and uh, you know, virtue, but I'm still doing the nightclub thing for a living. 
because it, it's, it's not an easy break, John. You don't just become a doctor. Yes. You know, you're, you're not like, oh, I'm, I'm making really great money partying and filling up nightclubs and I'm going to become a lawyer. You know, uh, there, there are many options. Well, I, f- I found it interesting in reading the book, Thirst, that you become, instead of being a, a joy-filled human being, getting ready for the next step on your journey, you, you go into this thing, you get more and more and more bitter doing what you know ultimately doesn't satisfy until as I've read, read it at least, and maybe you experience it completely differently, you have this moment, this inflection point with a uh, a bouncer. This guy treats you and a buddy very poorly and you get him fired. Talk, tell that story. I do. So I'm. this is a six month process and I'm just praying for a way out of nightlife. God, you know, help me. What am I gonna do with my life? And nothing is really happening. And I'm trying to quit smoking, but unsuccessfully. I'm, I, I lay off the drugs for a while, but then I fall back. Um, I try and sleep around less, but then I slip up. And uh, about six months later, after this New Year's vacation where you know, I realized something needs to change, I, as you said, I, I fired somebody from a nightclub for, for, for stealing or for harassing someone. And the next night, that person came to look for me with a gun. And I'd left five minutes before. So they kind of came for me at the time that I would finish my party and, and jump in a cab, and I I just bailed early that night. And you know, this person, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure how credible the threat was at the time, but it really um, it shook me a little bit. And and in nightlife, I I'd had my life threatened at least thirty times over those ten years. So you don't let someone in the nightclub, they come up and say, I'm going to come back and shoot you in the, you know, in the face. Yeah. You didn't let me in. And these, these were all empty threats, but something just felt a little different about this. And I said, look, I'm getting out of town for a couple of weeks. And I told my business partner, you're taking care of the nightclubs. I need a break. I rent a Ford Mustang, uh, a cobalt blue Ford Mustang, I remember, on a month rental. And I just start driving north aimlessly. I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea where I'm going to end up. Maybe Canada, who knows? And uh, I brought a Bible with me and I brought a bottle of Dewar's. <laughs> so it's like the, the old and the new. I mean, there was just this extreme fight going on. And the farther I got from New York, the, the less I wanted to go back and the more distance I felt and, and maybe the more permission I felt to, to, to try something new. And I remember almost out loud, um, I mean, maybe actually out loud, asking this question, what would the opposite of my life look like? You know, what what would the 180 degree turn? And I think maybe that was the problem, John, is that in that six month in it, I was just trying to pivot. I was trying to go 20 degrees or 40 degrees or 10 degrees, like do all the stuff a little less. And I just said, well, what what would the, the opposite look like? And I thought, okay, well, the opposite of my life would be serving God, serving the poor and quitting all of this crap that I'm doing. And I said, okay. So uh, I, I pledged to do that. And from this dial-up internet cafe on Moosehead Lake in Greenville, <laughs> Maine, I start applying to volunteer to the famous humanitarian organizations I'd heard of. Right. Um, I, I really had no context, but you know, Red Cross and the Salvation Army and World Vision and UNICEF and the Peace Corps. And I'm, I'm filling out these applications. And then, John, I never go back. I, I, I go to my parents' house, I liquidate uh, almost every material possession that I have, and I go to the south of France to a friend's house to kind of wait uh, as these organizations get back to me. And then what actually happens is they all reject me. 
the and, and this may not <laughs> this may not come as a surprise to someone listening, but you know, these people are like, we're serious organizations. That's right. We, we are can do better serious, than this. Sorry, what do you do, kid? You you get people drunk in nightclubs in New York City? Um, no, no thanks. <laughs> so in some ways, you know, I've I've already stepped out in faith. I've given up my apartment. I I remember putting two thousand DVDs up on eBay in a single lot. I mean, I'm trying to purge. I am trying to liquidate my old life, and no one will take me. No one will give me the chance to start over. And I continue praying, and finally, uh, I get an email from one organization that says uh, we're actually starting a mission to Liberia. And Liberia was the poorest country in the world at that time. And we need a photojournalist to come on this mission. And that's what I'd applied to be. And it turns out they had rejected my application the first time around. But we're about to start the mission without that volunteer position filled. So they had to go through the rejections. Right. And they said, we haven't agreed to take you, but we've agreed to meet you. And the, it was a giant hospital ship. And they were in Bremerhaven, Germany at the time. And I was actually in France. And I said, great, I'll be there Immediately, I'll jump on a train. And I, I, I headed up there and I convinced them that my heart had changed. And even though uh, maybe it didn't look like it, the resume didn't show that, um, I really did want to serve. And, and I did want to walk away from my, my old life. And the cool thing was I brought 15,000 people with me. So I had a club list mm. that I had compiled. I mean, Mick Jagger was on my club list. I mean, these, this is when email open rates were almost 100%. So I was inviting people three times a week to come to different magazine or fashion or music parties. And I knew in, intuitively that I would be able to invite them to do something journey. different into on this journey, exactly, with me. That I had built some sort of trust or some sort of connection with these people over 10 years. So I convinced Mercy Ships, this, this group, to take me on. And everything happens quickly. Three weeks later, I am walking up the gangway of a 522-foot hospital ship. This was a converted cruise liner that had been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art hospital. And the organization had a very simple mission. Let's sail this huge hospital ship up and down the coast of Africa. We'll pull into port with the best doctors and surgeons in the world who have given up their vacation time and are willing to operate for free and will help as many people as possible. And, and I had the one job on that ship where I was going to document all of the goodness, all of the, the hope and the healing that would happen. And I had a, a choice moment. There was a, there was a crossroads in my life, and maybe this is helpful for some people, um, where I, I, just, I just knew that I had to go all in, that I had to quit smoking entirely, and I had to quit drugs entirely, and I had to quit sleeping around, and I had to quit gambling and quit cursing and, and you know, never look at another pornographic image again, that I just had to kind of um, there, there was something symbolic or prophetic about the idea of walking up a gangway it's crazy. and sailing away to yes. a new continent and a new life and leaving all of that detritus, all of that crap on the shore, you know, the do over at 28 years old. And I, you know, can, that, can I ask you I, a that, question around that? Yeah. You know, so I read, of course, as you walked up the gangway and you know no one, you walk into your dingy, cold, cockroach-filled room. You have two men who are both from Africa already in this room. It's a lousy bed. It's a lousy setting. Did you have moments, including early on, where you're like, man, I think I've just made the biggest mistake of my life. I've made some mistakes before today, but this may be the biggest one. No. No, it was amazing. It was just, I just kind of embraced it. I, I think there was something, this is a new life. Two African roommates that worked <laughs> right. in the ship, they were cockroaches. I mean, I guess in some ways I, 
<laughs> maybe I enjoyed the pain, right? This was not a yeah. luxury setting. You know, I was almost embracing the maybe the, the life I would have imagined the monk serving the poor, right? Who gave up his stuff and is and, and was now taking the vow of poverty. Um, I, I just, I loved it. I love the heart, the soul, the spirit. I mean, I just, I joined a new family of 350 volunteers living on a ship right. in confined quarters with such a different intention to their life than the family I had known in nightlife for 10 years. And Scott, the family, I, yeah, we, we could honestly spend at least an hour talking about Mercy Ships both your experience there and the work they've done and do. It's its an amazing charity, but you realize not only are we doing great work, but the line is not shortening. The, the line of people that need your services is actually expanding. And that re recognition changes your life because you ultimately get down to the core of what causes all these illnesses in the first place. So talk about yeah. that for a moment. So real quick, you know, we, we would triage patients. We, we would, we would flyer the coming of the ship, uh, almost like you might promote a, a nightclub. <laughs> We'd post flyers around the whole country saying, hey, if you're sick, if you've got one of these conditions, turn up on this day and our doctors will try to triage you and we'll, we'll try and schedule you for surgery and help you. And we would have about 1,500 surgery slots to fill. And my third day there, John, I, I, I'll never forget. It was 5 or 5.30 in the morning. I put on hospital scrubs. I grab my Nikon cameras. I jump in a Land Rover convoy, and we start heading towards the soccer stadium, the football stadium the government has given us to triage the patients. And I'm thinking to myself, like, are there 1,500 sick people in this country with these kind of you know, <laughs> bizarre conditions? And we turn the corner, and there are more than 5,000 people standing in the parking lot. And I just have this moment, uh, it just, it overwhelmed me. Oh my gosh, the need is so great. We're going to send 3,000 plus people home without seeing a doctor. Right. I later learned many of these people had walked for more than a month. They'd walked with their children from neighboring countries. And we didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough surgery slots. We didn't have enough resources. So, so that was my day, day three on the mission. My first kind of pivotal moment is we are in over our head. This level of suffering and sickness is beyond what I could have ever imagined, and we are unprepared to meet it. That led me over a two-year process with Mercy Ships to understand that, that the dirty water people were drinking in the country was responsible for so much of the sickness mm -hmm. and disease in the country. And, and I learned that 50% of people in Liberia were drinking from swamps and from ponds and from rivers. They were drinking water so dirty we wouldn't let our animals drink it. Brown, viscous uh, water that looked more like chocolate milk mm. that was muddy, that was you could actually see bugs and, and sometimes larvae crawling around in it. But this was all that people had. And these two things were going on from these very expensive medical interventions performed by the best doctors and surgeons in the world, but a country where millions were drinking disgusting water. Right. And, I, and I just made the link between the, the disease we were seeing and the water that people were drinking. And then I learned on a global scale it's 663 million people. So this is not just limited to that country that I was in. This was a global problem. And the doctors and the surgeons encouraged me to go work on that. Mm. They said, we get it. Um, if you really care about healthcare, sure, you could help us fund another hospital ship. But what if you made sure that everybody had clean water to drink? What if you made that your life's mission? 
Well, you hear that. And uh, I think many of us have invitations to do something profound in our lives. And then we get busy with the next meeting, email, carpool line, whatever it is. You take this advice and this encouragement home, Scott. And as a club promoter and with that huge network, you throw yourself a birthday party. Talk about the birthday party. <laughs> well, I don't know. There was some, I, I, I don't know that I thought I was redeeming the, the 10 years of, <laughs> of club experience at the time. I mean, now looking back, it's, it's a wonderful turn. Um, I took the thing that I had done in a, in a really degenerate and maybe damaging way for 10 years. And I tried to turn that for good in one night. And I said, look, I can get a club donated. I can get some booze donated. You know, I can give everybody open bar for an hour and I can get people to turn up. And I invited 700 people to my 31st birthday party. And I asked them on the way in that everyone pay $20 and put it into a giant plexi box where we could see the money stack up. <laughs> and of course, everyone did. And that night we raised $15,000. And instead of putting that money in my pocket and maybe jumping on a flight to Milan or Paris, we took 100% of that to a refugee camp in northern Uganda. And we did our first couple water projects. And then I sent the photos of clean water flowing. I sent the satellite images. I sent video yeah. back to the 700 people a couple months later and said, you did this. Remember that party? <laughs> I bet you thought nothing would ever come of that, that money you threw in a box. But here's where all of that money, 100% of that money went. And here are the people that you helped get clean water. And, and I remember it felt as if everyone wrote me back. They were so blown away by the fact that a charity would bother to report back yeah. on a $20 cash donation in a nightclub. They said, this is amazing. How do we do more of this? How do we get involved? And it was kind of the proof of concept. And you know, I mentioned 100%. That was one of the big learnings. When I came back from Africa, I was 30. I was completely broke because I'd given all my money to Mercy Ships and the people that I met along the way. My, my old nightclub prom promoter friend takes me in and says, you can sleep on the, the walk-in closet floor of my loft in Soho and you can use my couch as your office. And I'm running around telling everyone, I am going to try and end the water crisis in my lifetime. I'm going to see a day on earth before I die mm. where no one is drinking disgusting water simply because of the conditions they've been born into. And people are like, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea, but we don't trust charities. No, we don't, we don't give to charities. And uh, remember, I had the unique advantage of not having any of the trappings of institutional that's philanthropy. Right. I didn't know givers. I didn't know kind of, you know, maybe the people listening who, who have been generously engaging and giving or sponsoring kids. I knew a pretty cynical, skeptical public. And I learned that there was data behind this. In fact, 42% of Americans polled said they didn't trust charities. And another recent poll found 70% of Americans, John, believe charities waste their money. 70% of Americans nice. believe charities waste their money. So I thought, man, if I'm going to make any significant impact raising awareness and money to help people get clean water, we're going to need a different business model. We are going to need to win back the lost trust. We're going to need to win over the skeptic and the cynic, bring these disenchanted potential givers back to the table and say, hey, take another look. And, and the best idea I had was to make a promise that 100% of all donations without exception would always go directly to build these water solutions that would help people get clean water. And I opened up a separate bank account for the overhead and said, I don't know how this is gonna work, but I don't want you to be able to use the excuse ever. How much of my money is right. actually gonna reach 
the people? Because the answer would always be 100%. Whether you give $1 or $100 or a million dollars, it will all reach the people. And then I would create extra work for myself, but I would go and hopefully find a few visionary people who wouldn't mind paying the office rent and the, the copy machine you know, uh, toner or the, the staff salaries. And that turned, that turned out to be really, really unique at the time and, and a reason for so much of the early growth and a reason for why so many people said, this is the first thing I can believe in. This is the first thing I've ever given to. So Scott, but I know where my money's going. To me, they, they walk hand in hand. They're both amazing stories, both what you've done through the charity, but, but also the generosity of these early adapters and the current adapters who get nothing in return tax-wise. They just want to pour themselves into a cause bigger than themselves. So I'm, I'm curious, as you look out your office floor door right now, which of the two donor bases most amazes and inspires you? And I'm not trying to make you pick your favorite child, but I'm going to ask you right now, is it the millions of those who have donated, literally million people who have donated to see 100% of their donation go right to these well projects? Or is it these other quiet donors who are investing so that the entire engine can keep churning out good news? The answer really is both yeah. because there's so much sacrifice and radical generosity on both in both bank accounts. Um, it, it is actually tax deductible. So the 130, the way that we do it today, so now if you fast forward 12 years, there are 131 families around the world that pay for all the overhead. Okay. We have 80 full-time staff here in New York. And um, you know it's, it's a significant organization now. So those 130 families give generously. They don't get their names on wells. Um, none of their money goes to the field. All of their money goes to staff salaries, to office rent, to insurance, to flights, okay? The kind of the not sexy costs that you could say. Um, so there's a lot of sacrificial giving there. But on the water side, there's also sacrificial giving. There was a six-year-old that just sent us in $8.15. And she debated after seeing one of our videos, should she give her allowance away or should she keep it? Because there were things that she wanted to buy. And she wound up, you know, after deliberating all evening, turning up the next morning, dropping the $8.15 on the kitchen table and asking her mom for pen and paper and writing us a letter saying, Dear Charity Water, I want my money to stop kids from dying of bad water. And she drew a picture of herself next to what she thought a well looked like in Africa with clean water coming out. You know, that is, that is just as inspiring, that sacrifice, that commitment. Um, there was, there was a, a child recently in Vancouver. I think she was seven or eight. And uh, she, her name was Maddie. And she did 12 lemonade stands for Charity Water. And one of the weekends, it was raining. And she refused to come in. <laughs> right. And at, at her 12th lemonade stand, she convinces a local band to perform on the sidewalk <laughs> so that she can attract more buyers. And she sells $5,600 of lemonade. What over, I, I want to slow you down, or actually maybe even speed you up a little bit. You, you, uh, you have so many of these stories of kids, whether they are seven, eight, nine, five, or uh, adults, whether they are uh, multi-millionaires or in retirement, barely getting by. But you, you, you keep these amazing stories going, and they keep spreading good news. One of my favorites, and it's one of the most painful, but it becomes one of the most redemptive. Uh, the origin of the story really begins on July twentieth, two thousand and one, and the. The child's name is Rachel Beckwith. Yeah. Talk about Rachel and, and how you first became familiar with her name and her story. <laughs> well, it really has a lot to do with this birthday idea. So yeah. Charity Water started with my 31st birthday in a nightclub. 
And we raised fifteen thousand dollars that night, so very you know inauspicious beginning, I guess you could say. And then a year later, I thought, okay, what do I do now? I'm turning thirty-two. I should probably do something for good with my birthday. And I just thought, oh, I don't want to do the clubs again. Like we've graduated. Okay, it was it was a nice way to to end a decade of nightlife and begin a new story. But it just didn't scale. Maybe I could get a thousand people in a club or charge them thirty bucks. It, it wasn't interesting. But I thought. If I think about the birthday, that is interesting because I don't need a party and I don't need any gifts. I mean, I have, I really have all my needs met. And I bet there's people listening that, that really have most of their, certainly their basic needs met. You know, if you think about water, if you think about shelter, if you think about food. And I said, you know, but, but yet a tenth of the world is drinking dirty water right now. They do not have their most basic need for health or for life met. So how dare I accept a, a handbag or a wallet or a tie or a gift card or throw myself a party because I just turned another year old? What if I could turn my birthday into this radical act of generosity? What if I could make my birthday about others and not myself? What if my birthday could actually help people have more birthdays, help more kids actually live to see their fifth, you know, let alone 32nd birthday? So I thought that the interesting kind of marketing idea would be I'd ask everyone I knew to donate my age in dollars. I loved that $32 was a messy number. So I'm just, I'm telling everybody, hey, I'm 30, turning 32. Will you donate $32 for my 32nd birthday? 100% of the money is going to help people get clean water. And I'll show you where the money goes. I'll send you photos, GPS coordinates of the water projects, um, satellite images, et cetera. So to my surprise, this just works. And, and I raised $59,000, a lot of it from strangers that just heard about this crazy guy giving up his birthday and asking for $32. So I, I, I then say, well, wow, bigger idea than me. Everybody's got a birthday and nobody needs more stuff or a party, really. So this seven-year-old kid in Austin, Texas, hears about my birthday idea. He starts knocking on doors in Austin and he raises $22,000. So... I'm like, whoa. <laughs> then an 89-year-old hears about the idea, Nona Ween, and she writes, on our, she writes a mission statement on her website. She says, I'm turning 89, and I'd like to make that possible for more people. And we're like, whoa, big idea. She, she gets it. She's lived twice as long as the average life expectancy in so many of these places where we're working. So if her birthday can help people you know, have a chance to live um, – to 89, we're, we're on to something. So this idea just starts growing and growing and growing. And um, okay, so a couple years later, I learned that there's this church in Seattle that wanted to make a statement that they, they were not religious and they actually pick charity water because we are not a faith-based charity. So this, this thing was was absolutely birthed out of my personal um, return to faith. And, and the, the beauty is that I get to live my Christian faith out through my work every day. But the organization's never been a religious organization. My vision was always bigger than, than involving people who did what I did on a Sunday or, or prayed to the God that I prayed. I, I just thought, like, if we're going to actually bring clean water to the whole world, by all means necessary. You know, I want everybody to get involved, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of religion, regardless of race or politics. Like I want everybody to stand for clean water, to stand for generosity and compassion and empathy. So I learned about this crazy church that raises $500,000 by throwing a keg party for the town and saying, you know, can you align with what we're doing? We're doing a fundraiser and they got a local band to perform. And I just thought this was crazy. So I, I invite myself to go and thank the church. And at the end of it, 
thanking them for raising all this money, I challenge every single person to donate their next birthday. And there's an eight-year-old girl in the audience, and I, I later learned that she waited to talk to me um, kind of in a line after the service, and they had to go somewhere. So she, her mom just kind of peeled her off, and they, they had to go to an appointment. So I never actually got to meet her. But um, I learned that Rachel goes on to donate her, her ninth birthday. She sets a goal of raising $300, and she falls a little short. She actually only raises $220. So she wanted to give, let's say, 10 people clean water, and she only gets seven people clean water. And I'm in Central African Republic uh, in the field with our local partners at the time of her campaign. And I come back, and I turn on my BlackBerry, <laughs> which dates this a little bit, <laughs> and, and I get a, a message from her pastor saying, hey, Rachel was killed in a car crash. Uh, there was a terrible 20-car pile up. She was the only fatality. A tractor trailer demolished the back seat of, of the car where she was. And Rachel's family wants to open up her campaign again because the campaign had closed and, and, and really honor her last wish. And he said, you know, Scott, this is a remarkable girl. She, she gave up her birthday party just like you. She, she, she wouldn't accept birthday gifts. And she wanted kids that she'd never met a world away to get clean drinking water. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow this campaign up. I'm going to have every single person in my church give $9 in her honor. And we reopened the campaign, and I'll never forget, um, I sat on the couch, I just had tears streaming down my face, and I'm telling my wife this story, and we make the $80 donation to, to help her get to her original $300 goal. And then we just watch this thing take off, nine, 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 nine. It goes from $300 to $30,000 to $100,000. The story over the next couple of days starts spreading through the Seattle community, across the United States of America, into Europe, and then down into Africa. And John, people in Africa start donating $9 to this girl who just passed away in Seattle, who cared about them. Mm. Over 30,000 complete strangers give to her campaign, and she raises $1.3 million. So, I, dude, I, I read this story over the weekend, and um, my my daughter Grace walks in. Grace is um, six years old, almost seven. She walks into the room, and I am seriously weeping. And so she comes in and says, "Dad, what's wrong?" You know, and I'm like, "Nothing's wrong. This is actually all right." So I read her the story, and I look up at this little girl's face who has everything in the world, and uh, my little girl, who I don't see emotional in that regard very frequently, is also weeping at this point. Uh, not so much out of sadness, but out of joy. You know, it's tragic in so many ways what happened to sweet Rachel and her family and the grief her mom and dad must bear still today. And yet $1.3 million raised by 31,997 donations coming in from Seattle, Washington, the United States, Europe, and around the world because of her life, because of her generosity, and because of her death. It's one of the most beautiful stories, I think, in your book, in your work, and it doesn't end there. You have the opportunity about a year after her birthday to, uh, to continue the birthday celebration. Will you, will you wrap up the story with that? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm really into redeeming things. <laughs> so, you know, what, what joy could we find? What gift might we be able to give her family, you know, her mom and her grandparents? She, she had a single mom uh, named Samantha. And, the only thing I, I thought we had to offer was that we could take her on the one-year anniversary of Rachel's death. We could take her and the grandparents to Ethiopia, which is where all the money went, and we could go village to village to village, and the family could see 
the clean water that was flowing on behalf of Rachel. They could see her legacy. They could touch it. They could meet the children who will not die of dirty, contaminated water because of Rachel's wish, Rachel's vision for a better world, Rachel's deep capacity for compassion, um, to look beyond the material possessions that we would just expect an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old to want. And that trip was so profound for me. I mean, we just, we were weeping, you know, going village to village. I remember um, there was this one moment where, you know, Rachel's mom um, kind of in mourning is in one of these villages that got a Rachel well. And uh, the elderly lady walk, uh, elderly women, they walk up and they surround Rachel's mom. And one of the women falls down at her feet and basically starts kind of kissing her feet. And through a translator says, we understand your pain because we've lost children too. But the difference is your daughter's death gave our children life. Mm. And it was so amazing. And, and this happened five years ago. And, and I don't even know if you know this part of the story, but um, we looked back recently at what all of those donors did, the 31,000 strangers. And we found that so many of them were inspired by Rachel's birthday campaign that they gave up their own birthdays <laughs> and they raised another $2 million. So it just keeps going. So she has now helped over 100,000 people get clean water. Okay, Madison Square Garden holds 20,000 people. The next time you know, you're know you in a stadium, right? Most stadiums are about 20 to 30,000. Take look around you at that sellout concert or sellout baseball game, you know, multiply by three or four. And that is the impact of people cheering on this nine-year-old girl who, who never got to see it, but her family got to see it and we all got to see it and it inspired us. Well, we got to see it, Scott, in no small part because of your openness to, um, to move into that gap and to live into the best version of yourself. So I'm, I'm just curious now as we get ready to pivot from what we've t- talked about to what we call the Live Inspired Seven. Scott, as you look forward, man, what is next for your charity? What's next for your life? Well, I think the best is yet to come. You know, we just uh, wrapped up 12 years and about eight and a half million people with clean water out of 660 million. So what is this? About 170th of the problem. One seventy-eighth of the problem. Okay, so we just need to go 78 times faster. We need to do 78 times more. Uh, That actually feels doable. Mm. Um, It it does feel doable. And we're we're not acting alone. There's lots of other great water organizations out there. And water as an issue has gotten so much more traction and awareness lately. Um, People are now starting to talk about this. They're starting to care about this. Um, So what's next for us? We want to grow our community. We've um, been lucky enough to be joined by a million people so far from over a hundred countries that I guess have, they've rejected, they've rejected the apathy that would be so easy to embrace with an issue like this, right? Uh, there's probably people listening saying, you know, the water crisis, the global water crisis, like what could I ever do in the face of a problem so big? And, and these big issues can just become paralyzing to us all, but a million people, you know, kids like Rachel, um, you know, well drillers in Ethiopia, like, uh, you know, 89 year olds like Nona Ween, a million people have said, I can do something. I might be able to donate a birthday. I might be able to donate $30 a month. I might be able to sponsor an entire water project with my family or with my company. Um, the 130 families have said, we can actually cover the overhead 
part. Mm-hmm. So a million people have said, we can do something about this. And, you know, I want that million to turn into 2 million people and 5 million people and 10 million people. So I look at what's next is this continuing invitation to a table, to a party. It's a party where the whole world gets clean drinking water, where we're all celebrating together, where we're bringing the best of ourselves, our compassion, our creativity, our money, our talent, our time in the service of others. And we say, you know what? People should have clean drinking water. Can't we all agree on that? You know, what's, what's beauty about this, what's beautiful about this work is that really no one is against us. You know, I get to speak to, you know, very liberal democratic groups. I get to speak to conservative Christian groups. I get to speak to Jewish groups and, you know, pretty much people of all faiths and no faiths. I mean, our, our largest donor who's given over $15 million to overhead in 12 years is an atheist. He thinks that I pray to a figment of my imagination and waste my time on Sundays. But he can stand for clean drinking water. And he's been with me you know, now with his three children to 11 different countries. So it's a, it's a big tent. And I think you know, we want to just keep inviting people into the tent. And the tent grows larger. And the impact around the world gets bigger and bigger. So, so, until Scott, one day we look back and say, look, we did it. We did it together. I, uh, I I want to uh, have access to this tent, so I am committing right now on our podcast to be part of the part of the solution and part of the family that is making a difference. So where can I and the rest of our community go right now to not only learn a little bit about the book that you just wrote that is worthy with, by the way, the profits flowing back into this. Yeah, yeah but, I don't but, make any money off. But where, where can we go to become a partner in this and to become part of the, the solution to such a global crisis? I think the best way to do that right now is a, is a community that we just started building called The Spring. And uh, people could just go to charitywater.org slash spring to learn more about that. And, and as we looked back at the first decade and said, here's what we want to accomplish in the second and beyond, um, we said, could we gather a group of people who would show up, not just once. You know, so many people, they learn about a cause or they, you know, they watch a, maybe a, a video online or hear a podcast and like, oh, I'll, I'll donate once. We're like, could we actually get a people to be loyal? Could we get them to show up month in and month out in the same way they might show up for Spotify or mm-hmm. for Netflix or for HBO? You know, or so, so we're really building this, this community of people. It's called the spring. I love the double entendre. Spring meaning a time of, of new beginnings. It's a time of hope. And it's actually the literal water um, that is clean, that, that is, is often just beneath people's feet mm. in the earth. Um, so that's a great way people can help. Every $30 gets one person clean water. And, and of course, 100% of whether someone's giving $10 a month or $30 a month or $100 a month, it's all going directly to help people. And then we keep telling stories of impact um, to that community saying, your money is helping these people in these countries. So I would say the spring is, is one way just to, that people can learn more. Um, charitywater.org slash spring. Well, I'm in. I, I believe this is episode 105 for us uh, in our podcast. And so we here live now are committing to joining the spring, joining in that movement and giving $105 monthly Amazing. going forward Thanks, to be John. part of this. So and, I, and I really do challenge. Mom, I'm looking at you right now, but our entire community to be generous. Uh, we probably don't need the next latte and we can probably do without one thing per month. And can uh, can we make a difference together that gives life to a community longing for it. So uh, the spring is worthy. I'm honored to be a part of that. So what I wanna do right now, Scott Harrison, is pivot on you a little bit and to wrap up our conversation by asking seven questions that have been asked of all of our guests. 
So question number one, uh, great man, is what is the best book you have ever read? Oh, wow. I'm going to break it into two categories. The, the first I would say is um, Getting Things Done would be the business book that has affected me the most by David Allen. And I've got to go, I've got to go with the message Bible, I think. I, that I keep coming back to the message time and time again. I love, um, it's, it's helped me rediscover the teachings of Jesus in such a different way, um, so much more relatable. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go to rediscovering the Bible in, in kind of a more contemporary language and then uh, getting things done. What one positive characteristic one trait did you possess as a child, Scott, that you wish you exhibited and possessed as brightly today? Innocence. If your home caught fire, your condo, your apartment, uh, and all living things, your children are out, your bride is out, the animals are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing, what would you grab? (laughs) My, my wife and kids are out, right? They are safe, man. (laughs) Um, I think my mom's book, the story of her life. She wrote a book and never published it before she passed away. Wow, man, I hope one day that gets published because I think she is one of the great heroes within this story. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you wanna have that nice long visit with? I'm gonna go with Albert Schweitzer. Mm. What do you think the first question you would ask Albert? Why did you do it all? What, what, was, what was driving you? And uh, if you had to switch spots with him for a moment, what do you think the answer might be? I would hope that it would be an experience uh, in, in his past that there would be a story that would lead to the, mm. the depth of heart and, and character and action. Scott, what's the best advice you've ever received? Put... Put integrity at the core of everything you do. Um, that that's so much more important than maybe the the things you're doing or the the ways that you're doing them. Um, I would say that would be the core value of my life. Uh, would be integrity and just always asking the question. You know, is this thing right? Not cutting the corners, not taking the easy way out. Integrity. What would you tell your twenty year old self? Dude, <laughs> dude, are, for this you, one. are you serious? <laughs> Get a haircut. Hey, they find out in the future, kid, that smoking is really, really bad. Like you should know this now, but <laughs> smoking is bad. Drugs are bad. Um, don't waste all of this time um, just to come full circle. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, It has been said, Scott, that all great humanitarians and individuals and uh, servants can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Hmm. He fought to inspire greater generosity and compassion and helped bring clean water to everybody on the planet. Today, we have a bonus question, and it's one I intended to ask earlier, but if I had the opportunity to ask uh, sweet mom and dad this, 
What do your mom and dad think about the little boy that went completely off the rails and then has come back completely on fire for life, for faith, for a, a cause bigger than himself? What, what do mom and dad think about the prodigal these days? Oh, they've been so proud over the years. I mean, my dad is is painful to watch him brag and hand out, you know, old business cards of mine and, you know, oh, my son was in the Wall Street Journal or my son, you know, was, I, I don't know. It's just, it's so painful to, to watch him kind of uh, show how proud he is in, in some ways, you know, like, dad, stop embarrassing me. We're in public. You know, you don't talk about these things. But they they really got to see it, and, and before my mom passed, she got to um, to to spend time with her her two beautiful grandchildren and um, develop a great relationship with my wife, and and know that know that this was consistent. You know, now I've been at it for twelve years. Mm-hmm. There, there's no fear in in either of them that I was going to revert back. You know that they really knew that this took, and that, that my life. I, I think they both believe that I'll finish well. Well, you're running the race well, that's for sure. You wrote a book called Thirst. It is a number one national bestseller currently. It's a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. You operate a charity called Charity Colon Water. You have a whole lot of individuals who believe in what you're doing. I am now one of them. I'm part of the spring, and I'm encouraging our community to step alongside of us to make a difference for something bigger than ourselves. Scott Harrison, you're a great example, man, and we appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you, my friend. What an honor to to share with you. My friends, that is Scott Harrison. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. And as much as I love the guests that we have on, I appreciate even more the impact of their stories, their messages, their lives on yours. So I'm asking you to take just a moment to do me a big favor. I'd like you to take a survey so that we can better understand what it is about our Live Inspired podcast that you love, what's working for you, maybe what's not working perfectly for you, what more you'd like to hear about, and maybe a special guest you'd like us to bring on. You can take this survey by visiting me online at John O'Leary Inspires dot com forward slash podcast. Again, here we go. John O'Leary inspires dot com forward slash podcast. Come on. I really want these podcasts to be as best as they can. I want them to challenge your thinking and elevate your lives. So take just a moment right now. Help us make this better, not only for you, but for our entire community. Your feedback matters. So go again right now to John O'Leary inspires dot com forward slash podcast.